Hello and welcome to the Founded and Grounded podcast. Every episode we feature the real world experiences of an established entrepreneur and share with you their learnings and their wisdom so that you can apply these to your own circumstances wherever you are in your own business journey or just in life in general. A very warm welcome to you. I'm Andrew Parsonage. I'll be your host for the next 30 to 40 minutes. And we have reached episode 14 of season three of Founders and Grounded. So great to have you on board as ever. Of course, I can't sail the ship alone. So sitting somewhere out there virtually in cyberspace is my co-producer, co-presenter, co-collaborator, and having what's looking like a nice little uh, trip away somewhere elsewhere in the UK. A very warm welcome at this point to Mr. Ollie Collard. Good afternoon, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. Business startup good. guru, Ollie Collard, I should say. That's your usual prefix. So uh, <laughs> yes, all good with you, Ollie. Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, we're up in Greater Manchester visiting my wife's family this weekend. So um, yeah, looking forward to a nice long weekend up here. So you've squirreled yourself away from your family just for a few moments to uh, talk shop. And this episode, Ollie, something a bit different this time around. So normally we feature a founder, but this time around we're going to be speaking to someone who many founders will be looking to for support at some point, or rather his business or his area of business. And we're going to be talking about the world of venture capitalism today, which all sounds uh, quite exciting and scary in equal measures. So I'll just before we get into the, the meat of the episode and who we'll be speaking to. Can you just, just explain to the lay person, the, the uninitiated, i.e. myself, what is a venture capitalist, say, versus an investor, or are they the same thing? It's a good question, Andrew. So I suppose a, a VC, a venture capitalist, is specifically a private equity investor that provides money to companies with high growth potential um, in exchange for an equity stake. So they're institutional investors. Whereas if you're talking about perhaps an angel investor, those are normally high net worth individuals who are actually staking their own money in exchange for equity. So that's where the kind of distinction comes. Brilliant. Thank you. It's just useful to get that distinction clear at front because we're going to be spending the next half hour talking about this subject. And I know on many of our episodes, we're talking about the challenges and the ins and outs of investment. So really great now that we've got a venture capitalist to give their perspective and give a view from the other side of the desk, so to speak. So without further ado, then, Ollie, please tell us who this week's mystery guest is. Sure, can Andrew. So I caught up with Rob Moffat who is a partner at Boulderton Capital. Normally to begin with on the Founders and Grounded podcast, we try and get the origin story from our guest entrepreneur. But this time around, it's slightly different. So to begin with, Ollie, who caught it with Rob recently, just asked him to give a little bit of background as to what he does and to find some explanation and further detail around the sorts of things that Rob gets involved with when it comes to the world of venture capital. We've been investing in European tech companies now for 21 years, very broad across tech. So it could be any industry, fintech, software, consumer, crypto, healthcare, sustainability, but trying to find the, the best companies, best founders and companies that can go all the way and build billion dollar, $10 billion businesses. We've had early stage funds, we're on our eighth early stage investing fund. So we raised $600 million last year to carry on investing at seed and series A stage. And we now also have a growth fund so we can invest at the series B, series C. So we can invest any amount from a million dollars through to $50 million in great companies. Fantastic, Rob. Talking about you, the person, I'd love to know a bit more about your background. I know you've worked for the likes of Google and you've been a strategy consultant. How did you get started in VC? 
I joined VC in 2009, and I think most people back then sort of arrived in VC by accident. And that was my story. So yeah, so I worked at Bain, did an MBA. In my MBA, there was one course on VC, and I did it and thought, this sounds amazing. And then looked at whether there are any job opportunities in VC, and there were zero. Uh, so I gave up on that, uh, went to Google, did sales operations at Google. Had a great time, loved the sector, knew I wanted to work in tech, and knew I never wanted to work in a large company again. So I interviewed for a couple of startups and also interviewed for a couple of venture capital firms. And come 2009, there were a couple of firms who were starting to hire again. And the Google experience then was, was quite interesting for them. These days, I, would, I wouldn't have had a chance. Now we can hire people who've been product managers at startups and been at I don't know, Goldman Sachs and, and really impressive places before. We can hire people with that real startup experience. But back then, Google was enough to get me the job at Balderton. And stayed. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the variety, getting to work with some amazing founders. And so yeah, still doing it now, 12 years on. Our listeners are including people who are kind of new to the world of entrepreneurship and VC. So I was hoping in kind of simple terms, um, if you could kindly explain the different stages of funding and where Bolton fit into that mix and kind of what size checks you write. Yeah. So let me give sort of one, one kind of typical path. So the first investment you would raise would be pre-seed funding. So you've got an idea, you've found a co-founder, you're starting to work on it. You need some money to hire your first engineer to start paying AWS bills. And so you raise a pre-seed round and that could be as small as £150,000. It could be maybe a million or two. That normally comes from angel investors, friends and family. In the UK, it would be SEIS. So it's a very advantageous tax scheme for people to angel invest in your company. We don't do that stage. Next stage you raise would be seed. You sort of built something, you've got a bit of a product you can show, maybe a couple of sort of early customers. Then you raise a seed raise of say one to five million pounds. That's something we would do. We don't do a lot of seed investing, but we do some. And you also have dedicated seed investors. So someone like Seed Camp uh, or Local Globe would be really focused on that stage. Then you'd have Series A at that point. If you've got customers, you're showing product market fit. If you're a software business, maybe you have roughly a million of revenues. If you're a consumer business, you have tens of thousands of customers using your product. At that point, you can raise Series A, roughly 10 million. That's our sort of sweet spot. We, we love investing at Series A, uh, and that's all about scaling and, and growing fast. And then Series B, C after that, which you can now do with the growth fund, uh, and it's about continuing to scale out the company. And I know you've led on some well-known startup investments, including Carwell, Clio, and Wagestream, to name just a few. And you must have worked with so many incredible founders. But if you had to just highlight one founder who is really sharing some inspirational content and other founders could really learn from them, who would that be? Uh, yeah, I, I get to work with, yeah, I'm on board of 10 companies now. And every founder is really impressive uh, and they're all quite different. Not many of them share a lot. So that's why I'm hesitating slightly. I guess, uh, yeah, Sten, who's the founder of Zigo, CEO of Zigo, which is reinventing commercial motor insurance. And he's, yeah, he's done a number of public talks around his approach to the insurance industry. He was not from the world of insurance at all. And I think that's been a real benefit for him in terms of how do you innovate in this industry. Just touching upon that in terms of him not having any background in the insurance industry you said there that it's actually given maybe perhaps a bit of a competitive advantage so what would you say to founders that don't have experience within their industry that they're starting up in how can they turn that into their advantage 
So I think it's if you haven't got experience in that industry, you can you believe everything is possible. Whereas if you've been in insurance for twenty years, you're like, oh, we can't do that. That'll never work. <laughs> Whereas you come in, yeah, with with an outsider, you're like, yeah, everything's possible. And I think yeah, it's it's very important to be curious, to be smart. You've got to yeah understand sometimes some very complex industries, and you need to properly understand them. You can't carry on not understanding insurance. You do have to learn very fast. You need to hire people who are deep in the sector, then have that balance. So in Zigo, on the, the pricing side, the insurance side, we have actuaries, we have people with sort of deep insurance experience, but we also have data scientists and engineers with no insurance experience. And it's a combination of the two that I think really get you to having an innovative, but also profitable insurance product. So there we go. So that's the lowdown on Rob's world and everything he gets involved with. So hopefully that was useful to uh, to you listening there. If this is something that you've uh, approached in the past or you're thinking about, I don't think I can really add any more to what you and uh, Rob were talking about just then, Ollie. But there's one thing that Rob said that um, was quite interesting. I wanted to quickly explore with you. And it's about people who become founders and see the opportunity. What was interesting was that Rob said you don't necessarily have to have experience and actually, a founder having an everything is possible mindset is often the way to go. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think it does come down to mindset. I think for a founder to be successful, they've got to have that kind of growth mindset and something that they're able to stretch themselves and learn as they go and really absorb information and generally be a really good people person to obviously grow the company. So you can be a successful founder if you haven't come from the industry you're starting up in. The one caveat probably with that is, for example, if you're building a technology company and you're a non-technical founder, I think it's really important to have the right people in place. So you've got like a, a CTO, a chief technology officer who really knows their stuff in terms of technology. Otherwise, it's going to take you so long to get to market and you probably won't capitalize on the opportunity. So I think, yeah, not having the experience in the industry is a possibility, but you've really got to surround yourself with the right people and bring them into the business. Yeah, certainly in Rob's words, you have to learn fast. And in a way, that's a nice cue for the next part of the conversation with Rob. So we were talking about being on the other side of the desk when it comes to a conversation with a venture capitalist. So we thought it'd be a good idea to ask Rob what sort of things venture capitalists are looking for in a business that they may possibly back. And this is what Rob had to say. I think the first thing to do is, is really focus on your your business and your product. And if you're building something good, there are a lot of investors around now. As long as you have some sort of public presence, people will find you and they'll start chasing you. There are ways to optimize for fundraising, but what matters more than any of that is are you building something interesting? In terms of being practical advice, we're absolutely fine with inbound cold emails as long as they are to the point and give us a compelling reason to meet. So a kind of couple of paragraphs on what you're doing, why it's interesting, why you're the right person to do it and what stage you're at. And sometimes I'll say, yeah, that's great. Let's have a half hour call and, and dig in more. And often I'll say, actually, not now or this isn't right for us. And I think, yeah, a good piece of advice is when you raise your first round from from angels, from individuals, getting some people who are reasonably prolific uh, investors uh, and who've got good connections with investors, with, with VCs. I think that's it's good to get those kind of super angels, they're called, so people who've made hundreds of angel investments and have great sort of VC links. Those are good people to get involved early on in your company. Great stuff, Rob. And um, would you be able to highlight any kind of common mistakes that founders make and how to avoid those? I think a, a topical one right now, I think 
the funding market last year was, was very strong. And the, I think there's a couple of stories around and you can read about founders who are raising 10 million, 15 million without having done anything sort of before they've even started building a product. That was only ever exceptional. It was only really happening last year when I think the funding market was unusually strong. And I don't really see it happening much in the future. And I certainly didn't see it happening in the past. So I think, yeah, <laughs> having the right expectations on what amount of money to raise when. We're definitely at the moment, we're seeing people saying they want to raise 20 and then coming back sort of a couple of weeks later and say, actually, now we're raising 10. The second piece is being very clear what kind of business you're building. There are some businesses which are going to be great businesses and they're going to build 10 million pounds of revenues and 2 million pounds of profits. And that is going to make the founder successful and they're going to build a great product and, and get wealthy, but they should never raise venture capital. Because what we're looking for is a company that can get to hundreds of millions of revenue with higher risk, but it can be very big. And I think being very clear to yourself, what kind of business you're building, rather than saying, actually, I want to raise money and maximize my top line valuation for the sake of it. I think it's key. I know having the right founding team. So making sure that you have the right people around you and the people you can spend the next 10 years working with. Fantastic advice there, Rob. And less than 1% of startups actually get funding. What shared traits do you see in successful founders? Are there any kind of commonalities, any things about their mindset that you kind of pick up on? Yes, yeah, something we spend a lot of time trying to work out uh, at Baldwin, because the biggest thing we invest in is founders. The challenges are really diverse. Uh, so we've done some research on this, there's some books written on it. And you look across people who've built successful companies and they have a real range of skills. I think you have to be unusually driven. It, it's really hard to found a company and take it through 10 years, blood, sweat and tears. So something that's really driving you, almost irrationally driving you, I think is, is really important. And you have to be smart, I think, to build a tech startup. You need to understand complex concepts. You need to understand the products in depth. You need to understand the code to some extent. So you need to be able to have a flexible mind that can deal with, with all that and can iterate fast. But I think outside of those two, there's a real range. But what we look for is someone who's got a real spike, who's unusually strong in one or two areas. So are they insanely intelligent or are they amazing team builders? Or are they visionaries and they sort of can paint an amazing vision of what they're building? Or are they just really creative and they've discovered this market opportunity that someone else has missed? So yeah, we, we, we sort of evaluate founders on 11 attributes and try and find where are they unusually strong. And could you kindly highlight those those 11 attributes? I can give you, I've, I've mentioned a few. So yeah, so there's intelligence, there is um, team building, there is communication, integrity. Yeah, that gives you, gives you a sample. Fantastic. Thank you. In terms of the kind of lack of diversity in VC, how are Boulderton addressing this gap? We have one female partner at the moment from nine partners, which is nowhere near enough. And obviously, over time, our, our desire is to get that sort of reasonably even balance. The challenge at partner level has been finding women with the requisite sort of level of experience to be a partner in, in a, a large VC. In our broader investment team, so our associates, principals, analysts, I think we're about 50-50, uh, male, female, uh, and also diverse in terms of nationality, skin color, et cetera. So yeah, our broader investment team, I, I'm reasonably happy with where we are. There's always more to do. And in the partnership, we're working on it. And we are in a better position than we were a couple of years ago, but lots more to do. We're also a member of diversity.vc, which finds candidates with diverse backgrounds to do interns, internships in VCs. I mean, yeah, recently we had a diverse TVC intern who joined us full-time, uh, which is great. 
And just flipping the question slightly, less than 2% of VC funding goes to women. How do you try and attract more women founders into VC? So we, we, uh, this is something we track ourselves against, and you can go to our website and look for our sustainable future goals. We did our first annual report against our goals, and one of the goals is, is diversity, both in our team and in the companies we invest in. And that has improved. We are backing a more diverse set of founders. It's definitely a lot more than 2% in terms of what percentage of founders we back are female. I don't remember the exact number recently, but I think it's more in the sort of 30, 40% range of teams that have at least one female founder. Fantastic. Um, so that's better, but it, yeah, lots, lots more to do. And how do we encourage that? How do we make sure we're meeting every female founder we can, that there's not a great female founder working away that we're not in touch with? And then making sure there's no intentional bias on in our decision-making, but making sure there's also no unintentional bias. So making sure like the founder attributes that we, we look at, making sure that there's no sort of unintentional bias in those uh, in our decision-making. So yeah, something we, we kind of focus on internally and review to make sure that we have a very sort of clear investment process. Ollie, you were touching upon this just a moment ago when we were last speaking. There's a whole range of things here in terms of what VCs are looking for. And you were mentioning about building the team around you. So we'll come back to that in a second. But quite a lot of interesting things, really, that are actually irrespective of the theme of this episode, which is about venture capitalism, are just things that founders should be looking at irrespective. Having a public presence. Are you building something interesting? Being clear about what business you're building and thinking about that initially. This is almost like business 101 for any founder, isn't it? Yeah, and like you say, Andrew, I think you could take these points on board regardless whether you're looking for funding or not. I think you've got to be able to stand out in the marketplace and be very clear on what you're building um, and the people that you're serving. So I think, yeah, some really good advice for founders listening to take on board here. Mm. I thought the point about having a public presence in particular, founders may go searching for people or cold calling VCs or other investors and all that kind of stuff. But actually, there's a lot to be said for just being out there, doing your thing, being known for doing your thing, having that high profile, whether it's through social media or through other means, and being in that position where you're the one who's actually being chased or cold called, so to speak. 100%. And we're definitely living in the age of the influencer. So I think if you are building a very active um, and prominent public profile, then like you say, people that might be coming to you rather than you doing all the chasing for the money. So I think if you're building a great personal brand, that's going to put you in great stead for the business. But also it gives you longevity. Perhaps your first business might not work out, but if you built up a very strong personal brand, then when it comes around to building your next business, it's going to put you in a very strong position. And in terms of building the right founding team, Ollie, you spoke a moment ago about having the right people around you. And Rob mentioned there, actually thinking ahead 10 years. I know you always love to ask our founders about where do you see your business being five years from now, but thinking 10 years ahead, how feasible is it to do that? I mean, it's obviously hard to predict the future fundamentally, but I think the reason VCs and investors take such a long-term view is that it takes time to build successful businesses. It doesn't happen overnight success. So I think you've got to really analyze the market, look at what direction it's going in, look at the trends, and actually be quite bold in terms of predicting how you think the industry is going to go. Investors are looking for that strong view on where the industry is heading and how you're going to capitalise on the opportunities that present themselves. 
Just one final point to pick up on here, and I really liked some of the phrases that Rob used here about founders. So we talked about businesses so far, but also looking at the qualities and founders themselves. And Rob said they're looking for people who are unusually driven and having the attributes where people are unusually strong. Again, all good things to think about. Yeah, and I think successful founders are very self-aware about their strengths and weaknesses. So they obviously play to their strengths and then plug in people around their weaknesses. So I think it's all about yeah having that self-awareness, but also having that that purpose and being very clear on that about what's driving you and why you want to succeed in the business and in life in general. Right, thanks, Ollie. So, as we've said a few times, this is an episode with a difference, but Rob doesn't get away from being asked for one piece of wisdom that he'd share with founders and for people who may be approaching venture capitalists. But first, we hear from him about the future of venture capitalism and where he thinks the growth opportunities for startups are. So, yeah, I'm, our mission at Borderson is yeah, be the absolute best investor in European companies at any stage and to be the, the investment firm that founders want to choose, to have the best community between our, our CEOs, our CTOs, the best support from our platform team, the best partnership. Increasingly, founders are, they have multiple offers from multiple investors and they have luxury of choice and they can make informed choices because they can talk to other founders and what it's really like to work with Balderton. And so for us, yeah, making sure that our product sort of after we invest is really strong. That's the core to, to what we do is, is, yeah, do we live a great experience for founders, therefore can continue investing in the best founders? Uh, and that leads to good returns for our, our investors who are pension funds and endowments. And uh, so, yeah, creating wealth for for a large number of people. For the venture industry as a whole, I think it's, it's an interesting time. I think there's been a lot of new money entering the market over the last two years. Some of it will stay and thrive and some won't. And so I think this year will be a bit of a transition year. All of the sort of Tiger Global and similar type investors, I think we'll, we'll see what happens with that over the next couple of years. Given all the uncertainty in life at the moment, you know, we had Brexit, we've had COVID, uh, obviously now, you know, upsetting scenes in Ukraine. How can founders make the most of opportunities in times of uncertainty? It's been quite hard to focus on on yeah, finding and, and chasing down startups over the last few weeks when compared to what's happening in Ukraine, which is which is tragic. Any change creates opportunities for startups. So for example, if you Cybersecurity, this is a dramatic increase focus on cybersecurity right now, and that's creating opportunities for startups. We're, we're investing in a company called Comply Advantage, uh, who do AML and sanctions screening. That obviously that business is changing very fast, and interest in that is, is rapidly increasing. It's similar for the COVID um, and lockdown, obviously caused companies like Hopin, Hubbelo, or others to, to explode, and yeah. a whole range of other sectors as well. So there's always more opportunities created. The great thing about startups and why I love working with startups is they can move very fast and, and pivot very quickly. Which market do you see for the biggest growth potential over the next 10 years? I mean, we see that the health market, I think, is already colossal and is only going to grow over the coming years. And there is so much that technology can bring to health. So we've been investing pretty heavily in that area over the last few years with, with Helix, uh, Sophia Genetics, Kaya Healthcare and others. And yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to be happened there. Huge focus around climate and sustainability. How can we reduce, eliminate emissions? How do we make sure we have the right data and software in place to to keep pushing this down? 
But at the same time, yeah, personally, I, I spend a lot of my time in, in fintech and in tech, but there's still a huge amount to be done in both those sectors. There are enormous areas. And so I'm going to continue looking personally at those areas. Are you solely focused on tech or is there any areas outside of that? We're solely focused on tech, but yeah. every company is a tech company. Every company can yeah. claim they are a tech company. And we do have debates on, is this enough of a tech company? For example, we're invested in small. So small are direct-to-consumer cleaning products. So washing tablets, detergent tablets. The software element of small is, is not big. There is technology. There's technology in, in building the best quality cleaning products with the lowest carbon footprint, using the best ingredients, nothing harmful for the environment. And so there's technology around that piece. But that was a uh, that was all we debated. Mm, interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I think we'll we'll see the same. Yeah, we're doing a sort of food tech investment at the moment. That's definitely not our sort of conventional sort of software driven business, but there is technology to it as well. Interesting. And what industry would you say has the biggest potential to leverage the power of tech and is kind of ripe for disruption? Yeah, so I spoke about health, and there's a huge amount to be done in health. It's, it's so much is so inefficient today, and so much is just not done in health. Insurance, I still feel like we're very early days in insurance. There's been a few sort of fairly successful startups, but it's a colossal industry, and it's still mostly run in a very traditional way. So I see a huge potential in insurance. Good stuff, Rob. And where can people find out a bit more about you and Boulderton in general? I know you've got a fantastic blog on Medium. So where can people find you? Site on our website, so boulderton.com. Yeah, we have a lot of content on our website around who we are, our portfolio, but also we have a section called Build, which is a lot of our advice in terms of building out a company. We have a bunch of sort of practical guides around employee incentivization, board management, uh, SFGs, ESGs, as I discussed earlier. So that's the best place to start. And then, yeah, also my, my blog is under robmoff.com, R-O-B-M-O-F-F.com. And one of the key parts of the Founder Grounded show is asking normally founders for just one piece of advice that you'd pass on to somebody thinking of starting a business. But yeah, I'd love to ask you the same question. I think you're always doing better than you think you are. In the, in the startup world, there's a lot of insecure overachievers and people who, are, who think they're doing a bad job and actually are doing a great job. But I think particularly in the UK, there's a real lack of sort of positive feedback and peer support. And so it can be very lonely. And often people have this imposter syndrome. They think that they're not good enough to be doing what they're doing. And I think it can be emotionally very stressful. So I think realizing that everyone's in the same boat and that everyone is feeling this. And you're actually doing a much better job of this than you think. So, Rob, you've been in this space for over 12 years. What, what motivates you to get out of bed every morning? A big part of what gets me going in the morning is, yeah, I'm on the board of 10 portfolio companies and I want to see them all be great successes. And I want to do everything I can to, to be helpful in that and support the CEOs, the founders uh, in building fantastic businesses. So that's, that's what sort of definitely gets me up. And then is making new investments. And it's that first meeting with a founder where you get that sort of fizzing feeling. That this is a pretty impressive founder with a really interesting idea. And that excitement of trying to work out, is this really the one? Is this the next uh, Revolut or not? The thrill of that alongside the ongoing kind of board work, that's what really, yeah, inspires me to keep doing this. In the last episode of Founding the Grounded, we had Alex on, whose passion was clearly brewing. And so founded and set up the very successful Lost and Grounded Brewery. But for the founders 
they may not necessarily have a passion, but they're trying to create a business out of something else. So I guess my question is really, Ollie, should founders who maybe aren't quite sure they've got that entrepreneurial thing within them and they're desperate to get going, should founders think about things like sustainability or health and try and find the opportunity there, even if that's not necessarily their background or their driving passion? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? I think if you're very entrepreneurial minded, but you don't have that cut through business idea yet, then I think looking at future trends is a really good way of thinking about what businesses you could potentially create. So I'd look on the the government's website about the industrial strategy and the challenges that present the future for the UK economy. So looking at things like clean growth, aging of society, the future of mobility, artificial intelligence and the data economy. And there's lots of funding related to those different strands. So as a kind of opportunistic entrepreneur, I think if you're very clear on what challenges are going to present the economy in the future, then you're going to be able to look into that in greater detail and potentially come up with opportunities and be able to actually solve those problems. And that's what fundamentally what an entrepreneur is, a problem solver. So if you're looking at the challenges of the future, and how to address them. And that's a way of potentially sparking new businesses. And it was interesting that Rob picked up on insurance as another area that's ripe for growth or for disruption, because we had Sam White on only a few episodes ago. So uncanny timing there, Ollie. Indeed. So moving on then to Rob's one piece of wisdom. So every episode, we always ask people for their nugget that they'll share with entrepreneurs and founders. And this is interesting, Ollie. In Rob's words, you're always doing better than you think you are. Maybe it says a lot about the culture here in the UK. Interesting that Rob talked about a lack of positive feedback and peer support in this country and the fact that maybe people do themselves down. There's the imposter syndrome that is a phrase that we're all familiar with. Whereas I know in the past when we featured uh, guests from the other side of the Atlantic, it's a completely different mindset. They actually, they back themselves. They've got that self-confidence. Ollie, from what you see, do you think the lack of positive feedback is hampering entrepreneurs and holding many back in this country? I I do, Andrew. I think sometimes we can be a bit prudish and a bit British in terms of our approach to things. And like you say, comparing ourselves to our American counterparts over the water, they do back themselves a lot more. And I think their mindset sometimes is a lot stronger. I think there is a clear nuance between the attitudes to entrepreneurship. And I do think it is changing. But I absolutely love Rob's uh, bit of advice here because, you know, people are by far and large, doing far better than they anticipated. And I think if people actually took time to reflect on where they were, you know, one, two, three, four, five years ago, then they'll actually see how far they've come. But what they're trying to compare themselves to is people who've put in 10, 15 years of work to get to where they are. So I think sometimes it's about having unrealistic expectations of how quickly you can achieve success, whether that be in business or life in general people should just give themselves a bit more of a a break really so there you go there's the message then simply back yourselves So at this point of the Founders and Grounded podcast, we focus on the question posed by our previous episode's guest. In this case, it was Alex from the Lost and Grounded Brewery. And Ollie, just remind us of the question that Alex was posing our listeners. Yeah, so Alex had a, a really interesting question, which was very simple. What do you buy more into? Option A, a brand, or option B, a culture? 
I think it threw up some really interesting questions. Obviously, it throws up your interpretation of what a brand and a culture is and whether one thing is external or internal and what is the overlap between the two. So the results were quite interesting, actually. Nearly 90%, 88% of people saying that they buy more into culture rather than the brand, with only 12% backing a brand over culture. Mm, interesting. So there was a few comments from our community that stood out. So I was going to, have to focus in on these here. The first was from Claire Gordon, who was saying, is it the people that help make the brand what it is? Question mark. And it's, it's an interesting point, Holly, because you and I, when we speak, we often say that you know, when you run a business, you are the brand and what you outwardly project is a reflection on your business. What are your thoughts on that, Ollie? I think anyone can build a brand. I don't think anyone can build a culture. And I think that's the, the key distinction between the two. So someone else, actually, Ben Chappelle, made this point about if brands and culture aren't the same thing, then something is wrong. So again, Ollie, would you agree that, that if there's a massive disconnect between a brand and the culture, then there are problems ahead for the, the business in question? Yeah, I think so. You've got to look at the likes of, say, Brewdog, which have been very successful over the years in terms of a, a brand. And, you know, they've achieved hyper growth, their customers as shareholders, becoming a B Corp in terms of doing good for people and the planet. But then you look at the things coming out of the media in terms of their leadership and some of the culture that's present at Brewdog. So there's a clear disconnect there, I think, between the, the brand and the culture. Actually, just related to that point, and it's very appropriate that on the back of uh, an episode featuring a brewery that we have had one of our community someone called Amos Beer, who got in touch just on this subject. And he was saying that it's not too hard to build a brand whilst having a toxic culture. And there are accounts examples. It's what's inside that matters. And that goes exactly back to the point you were just making about Brewdog and how that's become very public in recent months in terms of the disconnect between the brand and the culture. So yeah, Amos is backing up what you're saying there, Ollie. Yeah. And I think Amos puts it very succinctly there. And I, I completely agree with his his comment. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks for all your feedback there. That was a really interesting one, actually, that uh, did create some, some good comments and good responses. We do have a question for this episode from Rob Moffat Balderton, and this is what Rob wants to know from you. It'd be interesting to ask what people's view is on we're seeing a sort of return from remote working back into the office. And I think that sort of mindset is, is changing on that pretty fast. So I think it'd be interesting to understand, like, where do people see? Are they people who see themselves five days a week back in the office now? Uh, do people still want to do some sort of 50-50 or do they still want to stay at home? And what's their sort of ideal? Okay, so again, nice open one there and something that's very relevant to all of us as life continues to open back up again. It's fair to say, actually, Ollie, it seems like life has been opened up again for quite a while now, depending on which uh, business organisation you work in. But simply, yeah, where where do you sit when it comes to your physical workplace and whether you have now conditioned to being at home all the time or whether you're desperate to get back into the office and have it completely the way or whether it is that hybrid working? We would love to hear from you. And Ollie, I'm wondering at this point whether you can remember all our various channels that people can uh, get hold of us by. Oh, you've stitched me up here. Sorry. So we're active across Facebook. We've got a, a page, but also a community group on there. Also present on Instagram and Twitter. So come and say hi. And Ollie, just before we wrap up this particular episode, we're just going to mention a survey that's been carried out by another venture capitalist firm called Caverdon. And this is looking to get views from founders on a whole range of things. So Ollie, just tell us a little bit about this because the survey actually revealed some quite interesting stuff, didn't it? We came across a survey by Caverdon Capital who are embracing the principle of circular economics and bringing that into the world of VC. 
So they surveyed lots of founders at varying stages. They came up with some really interesting findings, which I'm just going to run through quickly here. So the founders they surveyed fell into four different categories. So either pre-startup, failed, in progress, who are currently building a startup and those who have exited. So one of the really interesting findings was about how much people trust VCs. And it really varies along the stages of business development. Those who are yet to start didn't have much trust, whereas those who had failed or already building their companies and those who had exited, the trust across each stage gradually increases. So that actually shows that VCs are adding significant value, but there may be a level of distrust for those who haven't yet engaged with VCs. Ola, do you think the survey shows that maybe founders' understanding of venture capitalism generally, do you still think that there's misconceptions out there or there's just it's just a, a bit of a weird relationship and that actually podcasts like the one we've done today with Rob might help from a founder's perspective? I'm hoping it really does help the people listening to this podcast. Having spoken to quite a few investors previously, I think VCs can add significant value. I think what founders really have to be conscious of is how much equity and ownership they're giving away at each stage of funding. On average, founders give away 20% at each stage. But if they're giving away too much in the early stages of funding, that means that the cap table for a VC is just going to be completely broken by the time they get to them at, say, Series A. So founders have got to be very conscious that they're not giving away too much of the company early doors if they really want to scale it and turn it into a, a unicorn of tomorrow. And Ollie, anything else that caught your eye from that survey? Yeah, there was a really interesting question around mental health, actually. Kavanagh asked people whether founders felt isolated and whether this was affecting their mental health. And the findings were that founders who got funding actually felt less isolated. Founders really struggle with their mental health before funding. And actually, having got funding on board, there is an uplift in terms of their mental well-being. And that may be tied to the fact that their business is doing well. I think founders put too much emphasis on the fact that they let their business be all-consuming and they feel that their self-worth is attached to the success of their business. So I think, yeah, really important point there. Okay. It's obviously quite an interesting and revealing survey. How can people get hold of that to look at it in a bit more detail? If people want to find out more about Caverdon Capital Survey, they just go to Caverdon, which is spelled with a K, K A V E D O N, capital with a K, K A P I T A L dot com forward slash founder hyphen survey. So loads of information in this episode, and we do hope you found it really useful and getting the perspective for once from the side of the venture capitalists. So thank you once again to Rob Moffat from Balderton. Ollie, who have we got lined up for our next episode, episode 15? We're speaking to Sweet, who've produced the world's first reusable water bottle that's made from plants. Ollie, thank you very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and catch you next time around. You too, Andrew. Look forward to catching up for the next episode. Excellent stuff. And to you too, listeners, wherever you are, thank you very much indeed for your time and company over the last 40 minutes. We really appreciate you joining us because we know that there are so many podcasts out there to go out. So thank you for choosing Founded and Grounded. 
Please also tell your friends, colleagues, communities, loved ones, whoever, about the Founders and Grounded podcast and get them to listen also. But for now, that's us done. So you have been listening to the Founders and Grounded show with myself, Andrew Parsonage, featuring the business talents and vocal skills of Mr. Ollie Collard. We'll be back, as Ollie said, for episode 15. But for now, please continue to take care of yourselves and of each other. Keep smiling and join us again soon for some more entrepreneurial wisdom. For now, though, cheerio.